everyone. I'm Melody Maraca. And I'm Bill C. Welcome back to the Into the Heart of U2 podcast, where two longtime fans discuss U2 music album by album and tour by tour, the fan experience and the perception of U2 and cultural consciousness. Right. Melody and I, we came of age with U2. We saw it all happen in real time. And as we sit here in 2023, we still care about this band, but we're concerned about their legacy. So, as we take a trip back through the band's history, we're going to try and place it in proper context and ultimately get to the bottom of whether U2 is one of the greats of all time or are the haters right after all. That's right. And we want to welcome you all to part three of our look at Octung Baby. In part one, we covered the difficult preparation for and recording of the album. In part two, we looked at the album song by song. And now what we're going to do is look at the Zoo TV tour, or at least take it up to the end of the outside broadcast leg. We'll save the Zooropa and Zoomerang portions for our next episode. Yeah. So, besides the fact that we talked our faces off during the Song by Song episode... Uh, it was a personal record for us, Melody. I mean, anyone who gets through that gets a t-shirt. Wait, we have merch now? A man can dream. <laughs> okay. So, we felt that Zoo TV deserved its own episode. Um, unlike their previous tours, it wasn't just a vehicle to deliver the band's music to its audience, but rather a piece of performance art in its own right, and quite a costly one at that, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, and also, it was a big part of the band's reinvention strategy. Yeah, I mean, you 2s so-called reinvention we keep talking about, this was all-encompassing. Uh, a very deliberate, well-crafted, new approach to songwriting, band image, aesthetic, and album art. But it's the tour. The Zoo TV tour, first in arenas, then in stadiums, where an entirely new U2 emerges and shows. They're not only going to mock their overly earnest and super serious past, but they're going to do it with a, a big spectacle of it. And they're going to take the piss out of the desensitizing effect of mass media in the process. Right. And to juxtapose as loudly and brightly as possible the place where art and commerce intersect. Um, and to finally admit that they liked some of the trappings of rock and roll. All true. Now, the whole Zoo TV concept owes much to Irish poet Brendan Kenley's line, the best way to serve the age is to betray it. That and the great Oscar Wilde quote, man is least himself when he talks in his own person, give him a mask and he will tell you the truth. Right. And, you know, Bill, there were several things that happened simultaneously that inspired Zoo TV, or more accurately, that inspired Bono to dream up Zoo TV. So first, there was the Gulf War, which lasted from August 1990 to the end of February 1991. The war was heavily televised, and because of new innovations at the time, like satellite technology, much of the war could be watched in real time in everyone's living room, or in the band's case, in a hotel in East Germany. Correct. I remember the story, and I think you do too, of Bono and Edge watching CNN, and the jet fighters come back from an air attack and tell reporters, yeah, it was so realistic, it felt like a video game. And they just look at each other amazed. So it's this idea of a hyper-reality that's desensitized all of us, even to war. 
Yeah. And, and then there were the shock jocks and the outrageous, obnoxious morning radio shows, um, you know, referred to as morning zoos that were all the rage at the time. I think Howard Stern at his worst and most successful. Um, they would do and say anything to get a rise out of and titillate the listener. It was tabloid radio and another presentation of distorted reality. Um, Bono ends up borrowing the shtick of these types of characters in his performance, like making crank calls to the White House, which we'll, we'll be discussing a little bit later. Um, also, Bono was a big fan of Ridley Scott's film Blade Runner and was thinking about a stage design that was reminiscent of the film's vision of a city in a dark dystopian future. Yeah, I mean, it's this illusion of a whole futuristic city with big black scaffolding like oil wells or TV towers shooting into the air with video screens flashing, you know, throughout, you know, and then with a second tier above the stage and two wings at the front corners of the stage onto which, you know, Bono and Edge can venture. And finally, a long catwalk to the middle of the arena where there's a small circular stage, a B stage as they will call it, and we still do, and we will get to that in a minute. Right. So Bono merges these visions together and comes up with this idea of taking a pirate TV station on the road that mirrors the cable TV reality and unreality whiplash uh, with shock jock morning zoo exploitism. So it's these two things combined with um, with Zoo Station, and, and this is where the name Zoo TV comes from. Uh, and how the band and their inner management circle start to refer to the tour as it's being conceived. Um, the band is excited by the prospect of merging art and new technology in a way that hasn't been done before. And they loop in Willie Williams, their longtime tour designer, and the guy who came up with that brilliant idea of using the Trabant cars they saw in Berlin as stage lighting elements. Um, and also a team of other visual artists, including Brian Eno. Right. I mean, it's Eno who's the one who apparently has the idea of having multiple video sources randomly generating chaos. Um, and he turned on its head this whole idea of what video should be. That is, use video to help the band get lost in the barrage of all these disparate images rather than use it to just help fans see the band more clearly. Um, Bono said at the time, ask yourself, what would Dolly or Picasso have done if they had video at their disposal? If they had samplers or sequencers or drum machines or electric guitars, photography or cinematography? That does sound like Bono, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't easy getting there. Now, was it, Melody? That's true. Uh, one of the false starts in the design was to have on the stage a giant blow-up baby with an inflatable penis that would wee on the audience. Pee on me, Bono! <laughs> <laughs> I <I'm> mean, sorry. <laughs> sorry. You could just see that, though. Yeah, you really can. Somebody, like, ripping their shirt off. <laughs> I was guess I literally was going to say that. I mean, I guess that does fit into the whole, you know, Dada-esque vibe. Dada is what you call it, Melly. <laughs> But no, really, really, frankly, I don't think that U2 has ever been punk enough to pull something like that off. I know, He's it's so it. true. It's sad. <laughs> All right, and, and listen, I wanted to just interject that this was not the first time a big rock and roll band had a giant penis on stage. Leave it to the Rolling Stones to have that distinction, because they had one on the 1975 tour that Mick enjoyed, you know, hugging and hamming it up with. All right. That's true. That's true. But a peeing penis, it's just a different matter altogether. I guess so. 
<laughs> but in any case, yeah. uh, fortunately, you two went with, you know, the giant video screens instead. But the design they settled on was, to say the least, um, an expensive proposition. Yeah. And to make this all come to life, they had to buy something called a Vidiwall, uh, a giant television screen. But it cost five million bucks. Now, Vidiwall was built by Philips, the company that owned Polygram, the company that just bought Island Records for $300 million, pretty much just to get you two on the roster. So the ban hatch a plan to invite Polygram CEO Elaine uh, Levy. Is it Elaine or Elan? Elan. Okay. Probably Elan. All right. He's, He's French, a Frenchie. Right? Uh, He's going to be mad at us no matter what. He's French. <laughs> All right. Levy uh, is invited to dinner uh, and they plan to butter him up and see if he can get Phillips to give uh, the gear to you two for free. Uh, during dinner, Bono leans over and asks, how about you uh, asking Phillips to give us the video screens? And Levy looks at Bono aghast and says, you don't even wait for dessert to ask me? I'm not stupid. I know why you asked me here. Well, that's what Bono gets when, you know, you invite somebody to dinner with ulterior motives. Melody, are you speaking from experience? Never mind, Phil. But anyway, okay. anyway, <laughs> really, this was a very sound business plan, though. You got to admit. Yeah. I mean, Phillips could have had their names plastered on all of the screens and this quote unquote product placement, if you will, would have felt very organic. But Phillips turned the band down. Yes. You two had to fork out the money for their Viddy screens, just like everybody else. Levy does get Polygram to kick in a half million bucks you know, in tour support, but Melody, let's remember, tour support, like advances, is not free money, it's all recoupable. So after all these grandiose ideas are settled on, um, you know, the hanging trebents as spotlights, the giant towers and scaffolding, the B stage, the multiple giant video screens, the satellite hookups, and operating a veritable TV station on site every night. After all that, leave it to Larry to be the killjoy, and ask, um, just how much money is this going to cost? <laughs> God bless Larry. It, literally. Oh, man. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, and, and I mean, you have to remember that the tour was being planned during the recording of Octung Baby. And yeah. the band had no idea how their audience would react to this um, deconstructed U2 they were, they were envisioning. Which is why the band decided to hedge their bets and start with a short arena leg. Um, which was much less costly than the later stadium shows, uh, uh, which were astronomically expensive to stage. Yeah, but I mean, the cost was still about $200,000 a day, whether there was a show or not on that day. Uh, and the projected profit margin was only about 4 to 5%, just kind of mind boggling. Yes, it is. Uh, in fact, Paul McGinnis was so unsure if this was all going to be a success that he had a contingency plan for a broadcasted finale of the Zoo TV tour to take place in Berlin at the Trabant factory early summer 1992 at the end of the European arena leg, meaning, I didn't no, meaning no outside broadcast. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't know about that at all. Yeah, I didn't know either. Before we were uh, researching. Yeah. And while all this is going on, the crazy ideas keep coming, another of which was covering the whole stage with logos of, you know, like Burger King, Shell, Sony, Heights, 
um, Betty Crocker, Fruit of the Loom, you know, billboards on a crowded highway. Willie Williams even drew up the plans calling it Motorway Madness. Right. And the band then played with the idea of, you know, letting the corporations pay for the product placement, thinking that they could mock them by taking their money before wisely realizing that if they ironically put up the logos and then ironically take the money, it's not so ironic anymore. Okay, that brings us to the prickly topic, Melody, of sponsorship. Ah, yes. For rock and roll musicians, there has almost always been a sort of water and oil type of relationship with getting into bed with corporations, certainly starting in the late 60s. And, you know, I'm thinking of that famous story of Jim Morrison threatening to smash a Buick apart on stage if the other members of the Doors let Light My Fire be used in a Buick commercial. Um, Particularly if you were a serious artist, getting a corporate sponsor was considered a pretty big sellout. Yeah, in the late 80s, um, two very fine bands I knew, the Long Riders and the Del Fuegos, appeared in a Miller beer commercial and were absolutely eviscerated for it. Uh, they never recovered. And if you saw it now, I mean, you'd be like, what's the problem? But I'm telling you, selling out at the time was a huge deal. Yeah, I mean, it's odd thinking about how different it was back then. Now, yeah. I mean, bands would kill to have their song in a commercial or featured on a TV show, um, let alone have a big company underwrite a tour. Um, it's really become a way to connect with a wider audience as well as you know, pay the bills. Um, why do you think it was so be- different back then, Bill? Um, I know you were dealing with this with your band, weren't you? Um, it's true. Um, it was definitely something we were all super sensitive to. Um, remember, these are, and we are, Gen Xers who came of age, you know, in the 80s, groomed on a suspicion of all things corporate or inauthentic. You know, don't trust the man. Um, sponsorship was viewed as something that undercut the integrity of the music and degraded the relationship between the artist and audience. Um, and you got to remember, a lot of rock and rollers, including all the members of U2, R.E.M., Springsteen, to a lot of the under, underground bands of the day, the replacements, Husker Du, Sonic Youth, you know, we're all basically middle class, not exactly rags to riches stories. So having a kind of vigilant single mindedness about artistic integrity was a way to compensate for not having grown up in, you know, abject poverty. Um, I can attest to that mindset. I mean, the entire music underground of which I was part of certainly lived by that. Now, juxtapose that with hip-hoppers, you know, up from the streets ethos. The idea that obtaining material wealth was something to be proud of and flaunted. I mean, hip-hoppers never wanted for street cred, right? So here we are, 1991, 1992, hip-hop is taking over as a cultural musical force. And I think what happened was fans of hip-hop ushered in a new generation of consumers who'd reconciled the quandary of working for the man and saw nothing sinful about working within the system to achieve success. Yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, artists like MC Hammer, Rum DMC, doing a lot of commercials, even in the late 80s, for companies like Taco Bell and Coke. They totally embraced it. No embarrassment at all. 
I mean, with rap and hip hop artists, there just wasn't, like you're saying, that old rock and roll aesthetic that making money isn't the objective, um, which speaks to your point, of course, um, which, you know, all of that thinking does seem to originate from this position of, I mean, let's call it what it is, white privilege, right? Yeah. Now, back to you two, a band that was always mindful of optics and looked to artists like Springsteen, who projected an everyman image and was decidedly anti-sponsorship. And you two, from the very beginning, as you know, Melody, had forged a relationship with their fans that was as much about showing how they conducted business as it was about making music. But when Zoo TV was conceived, they hadn't come to grips with any of these kind of um, ethical conundrums as it related to partnering with corporate brands like hip hoppers had. So when all is said and done, they sucked it up and bankrolled Zoo TV themselves. And this is something the haters love to forget instead you know, of seizing on how later you two started to get creative with partnerships with Apple until finally succumbing on the 360 tour with BlackBerry. But we'll get to that in due time. Yeah. And, you know, in talking about money, um, I think this could be a great place to discuss all the technology that went into the tour's production. Um, the satellite link-ups, the TV station on site, and all the other stuff that was going on under the stage, which the band and crew referred to as the underworld. Yeah, I mean, you 2 had been augmenting their stage sound with loops and sequencers since the Unforgettable Fire Tour, and by the Joshua Tree Tour, they were quietly fleshing out about eight songs, but on Zoo TV, there wasn't one song that the underworld wasn't at least adding a synth pad to. Um, but, you know, I think by Zoo TV, they were pretty honest about it. It's not like they were trying to keep a secret anymore. And let's be honest, it made it all sound great. It really did. Yeah. Um, you know, and in talking about this stuff, the band themselves, they did a lot of tour promotion at the time using things like mockumentaries that endlessly highlighted how high tech the tour was. Exactly. So... We're going to skip most of that and focus on the more artistic elements, which I think are equally, if not more important than the tech um, in deconstructing their image and the audience's perception. And a lot of that starts again with Bono. Um, Larry said, despite all the technology and design aspects, the the biggest difference for me was Bono and the glasses. He had been so open before. The idea that people wouldn't be able to see his eyes through the glasses was huge, unquote. And it really was huge for the fans and for the media. And it all did start with the wraparound shades, which beget the fly character during the making of Octane Baby. Then Bono for the tour also creates the Mirrorball Man and later McFisto, which we'll get to. Uh, And collectively, this liberates him as a performer moving forward. Yeah, and we've said something like this before. Now, these characters are a part of who Bono is as a performer. But when we first saw Bono's, as he's fond of saying, make your own rock star kit with Lou Reed's glasses, Elvis Presley's jacket, and Jim Morrison's leather trousers, it was confusing, as was intended. I mean, it was exciting, enticing, but it was also completely off-putting all at the same time. Yeah. You know, we had bookmarked in our part one when Bono comes home after the Love Town tour, 
and Allie asks him, what happened to you? You've become so serious. The boy I fell in love with was so full of mischief, so full of madness. You're a much more experimental character. Well, you can sure see in the character of the fly some of that Dadaist mischief Ali was referring to. Yeah, I mean, Bono was really going back to the beginning and not just reconstructing, but in a way resurrecting who he was as a performer. And, you know, the band have often talked about their early shows and their rudimentary attempts at using things like backdrops and shadows to try to confound the idea of what rock and roll was supposed to be. And here they were, you know, 10 plus years later, confounding the idea of who they were supposed to be. No question. This U2, and particularly this Bono, was a jarring thing to behold. But for Allie and Gigi and Gavin Friday and the Lipton Village, they recognized this Bono. And by extension, the Dadaist theatrics that the earliest U2 shows were steeped in. Yeah, and along with all the absurdism they experimented with, Bono, along with Gavin Friday, had studied different theater performance methods in the late 70s with Irish actor um, Connell um, Kearney, who himself had been a student of Marcel Marceau. This totally fascinates me that they did this. Yeah. Um, Anyway, even then, Bono wanted to learn how to use his body. He wanted to learn about stagecraft and character. So the impulse for the use of theatrics has always been there. Um, But at least on the surface, it had been subdued during the 1980s. Isn't it interesting that what actually happens is they don't pursue this, but rather Bono takes upon himself the role as let's call it salesman or missionary man. He went out there and he put his body and soul and heart on the line to get across the U2 message, uh, you know, and connect with an audience. But that, in fact, while admirable, kind of subverted the natural artistic evolution of U2. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because if you look at their history, Certainly in their early days, you have Bono kind of vacillating between characters. You have the fool, you have the boy. And no. during the boy album, of course, he's he's taking on that character. He is the boy. There's definitely a performance about it. You know, he's still singing in an English accent. He's still playing <laughs> with those characters. Yeah. Um, and then I think, as again, as much as, as I love what happens after this, you have October where, you know, maybe the art is is subsumed a bit by um what they what was going on spiritually with bono and yeah. it does sort of short circuit as you're saying sort of those artistic impulses um i like where they went to that's where i became a fan yeah but i've often looked at zoo tv or certainly when i've thought about it as sort of this literal resuscitation of what they were doing when they first started. It seems to be this just natural outcropping from that point, from that very, very early point. It it is, but I don't think enough people really even make that connection. And I think that's a shame because it's a really fascinating, you know, subplot of the reinvention. It's not just, hey, let's stop being earnest. It's actually a a doubling back or a or you know they're 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 reconnecting as you said or resuscitating right. or resurrecting something that actually already existed. Right. I mean, they basically just took that first road again, right? Whereas you can say with October War and so forth, it was kind of like an offshoot. 
it was a different road. Um, but there there seems to be more of a connection to that very early U2 and Octung Baby than there was with October War and so forth. It's, it's yeah. fascinating to me. But yeah, the whole mime thing and the whole Bono's real desire to be mm, a physical performer is fascinating. I can remember some of the very, very early pictures of the band, you know, from 1979, 1980, where he even looks like he's trying to enact mime poses. Yeah. You know, and it's fascinating. Like, where did all that go? And I, I think we've discussed where it all went. Um, clearly, he was thinking about other things and, you know, wanted to be true to his spiritual journey. But I can understand how you go out and when you, when you take this thing that you've dreamt up and you've created and you take it on the road, I can understand that um, duty or sense of duty, you know, to, to sell this thing to, to the world. It's easy to talk about Marcel Marceau in Dublin and you're right. playing every two weeks, but you're playing every night and you're, you're, you're traveling on a bus through America. You know, you, you are taking on a duty, you know, and there is a lot of, pressure there to do that so you can un kind of understand how that artistic natural evolution is uh, subverted as i said yeah. so you know let's get back to the character that started it all the fly and how this character not only started a rebirth for you too but in a sense inspired a reinvention of the live concert experience yeah, I mean, you'd mentioned Bono's mm, How to Invent a Rock Star Kit. Well, certainly, the wraparound shades, as we've covered, starts the transformation into the Fly character, but the all-leather getup is largely inspired by the suit Elvis Presley wore on the 1968 TV comeback special. I mention this because that's not the only thing they take from it. Probably the most memorable part of the Elvis comeback special is where Elvis and his original band sit in a circle with a crowd surrounding them and they play their old songs in a kind of stripped down fashion. And it's totally brilliant. <laughs> yes. And and this is the inspiration for one of Zoo TV's biggest innovations, what we now call the B stage. You know, Bono actually had tried to employ a B-stage on prior tours to bridge the gap between band and audience, but building and fire code restrictions ruled it out. Um, well, here on Zoo TV, somehow they make it happen. And having that moment, you know, mid-set, where they play some acoustic numbers in stark contrast to the bombardment of sound and visuals was a genius move. Uh, that was basically just tapping into MTV's Unplugged, if you recall, which was a big hit at the time. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, and if you think about it, though, now pretty much every artist um, touring arenas and stadiums uses some sort of a B stage to have a closer and more intimate moment with their audience. Yeah, I mean, B stage is become basically a euphemism for you know the unplugged moment of a concert mm -hmm. but it all started with zoo tv and you know melody it does count to be first <laughs> um one other thing i'd like to mention before we move on to talking about the show itself yeah. is the sort of um unusual way the tour was announced <laughs> 
if memory serves me correctly, the first leg wasn't announced until just a couple of weeks, maybe a few weeks before this tour started. And then the tickets went on sale just a few days after that. Now, granted, the standard time in between tour announcements and the actual gig wasn't as long as it is now, which can be six months, nine months, a year. Mm. But um, a few weeks was really a fast turnaround time even then. Yeah. Um, and the first leg itself, which was in North America, was pretty short. I mean, it was just 32 shows um, from the end of February to the end of April 1992. Um yeah. And the band were playing in arenas rather than stadiums. I mean, do you remember how difficult it was to get the ticket? Oh, God, yes. Um, what's happened to my band? I can't get tickets. Right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, only Miami area and the New York area and L.A. got more than one show. The rest just got one night stands, basically. Mm-hmm. Um which was another, uh, you know, example of Paul McGinnis's long-held strategy of initially not meeting ticket demand and creating hysteria. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was very lucky to score a ticket for that uh, LA Sports Arena show on the first leg. Um, Melody, you were there that night. I was there. Um, let's talk about your impressions of this, you know, new U2, uh, you know, as a longtime fan. You know, I'll be honest. I was one of those fans that was slower to come around to loving Octung Baby. And I was skeptical about the heavy theatricality of the new U2. I mean, I got it. I just wasn't sure if I was into it. Um, You know, I, I mean, I guess I had one foot firmly in the good music speaks for itself camp. And as for Bono and the fly, I mean, I was a little bit perplexed. You know, uh, previous to this, the band, of, and of course Bono in particular, had gone to great lengths to connect with the audience. And that connection had been so open-eyed, hand-clasping and mm-hmm. unifying. And it was a land where irony, sarcasm, and kitsch simply did not exist. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I just wanted to... Again, you know, Melody, how I love context. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we love context here on this podcast. <laughs> um, um, but but seriously, remember, there was no YouTube, no chat rooms, no blogs. Bootlegs took, you know, months to circulate. Other than, you know, the videos for The Fly, Mysterious Ways, and one. And I think there was one MTV report from the rehearsals. Um, we didn't have any idea what it was going to look or sound like. Um, and another thing, remember, it had been four years since they'd toured the States. And here, Octune Baby was taking off. All three singles were hits. And so even if the old fans needed a minute to, uh, you know, recalibrate their perceptions of the new U2, a huge new audience who didn't care about the past was flocking to these shows and loved it. No, that's true. That's true. Um, But this old fan's perspective, right? You know, (laughs) I remember the dozens of TV screens, the blinged out cars hanging from the ceiling, edged shiny pants, um, (laughs) a belly dancer. And I mean, really, most shockingly was that smirking Bono who was clearly playing a character. Yeah, It felt like at that moment, you know, we'd moved from what we thought was reality into a world (laughs) of artifice. And this, of course, begs the question, right? Was what had happened before the truth? 
Um, and that question, of course, plays perfectly into what the band were doing and saying. So thanks, guys, for putting me through a mini <laughs> existential crisis. So appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, I get that. I mean, if you became a convert, as I was, as you were, in large part because Bono made you believe it was okay to wear your heart on your sleeve in the face of a jaded world. Um, yeah, there was a moment early in that show where you wondered what was the last decade all about. Right. But, you know, the one thing I think that was undeniable, um, they sounded amazing. Mm. Probably the best that I've ever heard them play. Um, that show, more than anything else, really did cement my love of the album. It was an incredible spectacle. So fresh, so vibrant. And yeah, you're right. The new songs in particular sounded unbelievable, even better than on the record. Uh, and it's a good thing because the set list was front loaded with eight songs from Octane Baby and Gone was anything from the first three albums. Okay. All right. Let's talk about the opening of the show, Melody. Like on Octane Baby, Zoo Station would be the opener, as it would be for the entire Zoo TV tour. But the intro would evolve from leg to leg in its visuals, lighting, and theatricality. Melody, on that first leg, the first sight we got was Bono coming out alone in full lighting to center stage to a droning loop. And may I say, just like he's doing now at the Sphere, mm -hmm. <laughs> incidentally, yeah. And he starts wailing in a kind of Middle Eastern melody, you know, oh, mm -hmm. I could have lost you. Although he's now saying I could have found you, which is interesting. <laughs> um, but anyway, let's take a listen to that. Then, on the outside broadcast tour, they run the uh, Emergency Broadcast Network's brilliantly constructed creation of the first President Bush's chanting of the lyrics to Queen's We Will Rock You. Right. Um, and then you have Bono performing that now iconic movement when the lights go down, you know, his shaking and gesticulating that looks like a man, I don't know, being electrocuted uh, yeah. in front of a wall of blue and white static. The whole thing was fantastic. Yeah, for sure. So why don't we take a listen to that? Yeah, let's. We will, we will rock you. We will, we will rock you. We Back will. then, Brahma. Oh, I think that we just uh, had another satellite cross paths. Back then, Brahma. I'm not that far. That's the sound of videotape being rewound. We will, we will rock you. Let me say to everyone listening and watching tonight, may God continue to rock our nation, the United States of America. 
And ma'am, as great as Zeus Station sounds on record, it just sounds so fierce live. You know, with that whole bump and grind bass and drum attack and Edge driving it through the verses before he goes to that cool lilting riff on the chorus. And Bono, instead of big, open-throated emoting, he's tucked into the groove and delivering with a kind of uh, detached coolness about him. I mean... When did you ever say to yourself, yeah, you two, coolest band around? I mean, <laughs> never, right? But that's exactly what people were saying on this tour. I mean, yeah. who would have thought that after, you know, how stiff and pompous it all was getting, you know, at the end of the decade? I mean, not me, I can tell you that. But man, what a turn of events. Okay, back to that first show we saw, Melody. We've got uh, the fly-up next. So uh, what was your feeling with all, you know, that whole barrage of rapid-fire text and uh, truisms flashing on the screen? Yeah, I, I mean, I still vividly remember the first time I, I saw the the giant word believe fade out to the word lie. Mm. Oh, my poor idealistic soul. Um, <laughs> but there was something undeniably magnetic and sexy about the performance. Um, and then, you know, right before Even Better Than The Real Thing, um, Bono starts flipping channels on their in-house tv station which frankly I have to say that wasn't my f favorite part of the show. I actually found it a little bit dull. Um, uh, but of course, I mean, it did drive that idea of reality, unreality, art, commerce, uh, point home. Yeah. I mean, I agree. Um, he was still working out that bit on, you know, on that first leg, I think, um, it seemed tentative and yeah, a little gimmicky, at least on the first leg, as right, I said. Right. Um, but the song itself, again, it just sounds so powerful, you know, live, so silky and sexy and groovy. And Melody, when did you ever say that about a U2 song or, or feeling <laughs> that about that uh, at a U2 show? I mean, uh, no, I never did. That's <laughs> certainly true. Yeah, and that sexiness was certainly driven home uh, by one of the bigger set pieces of the whole tour, um, the the song, uh, of course, Mysterious Ways, that has the belly dancer yeah. um, come on stage. Um, but that idea didn't come until literally the last few days of the rehearsals for the tour, right, Bill? Oh, yeah. I mean, and you got to love that story of a young local named Christina Petro, who'd identified herself as a belly dancer to the U2 crew in the parking lot of Lakeland Civic Center during the rehearsals. 
And as a joke, the crew sends her out at the next rehearsal to dance with Bono on Mysterious Ways. He likes it and asks her to, uh, you know, join the circus. And she becomes <laughs> a regular every night on the song, swirling around just out of reach of Bono's strange to touch her. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we were talking in the last episode about how powerful the vamp was at the end of Mysterious Ways. And for me, this was when a tardy, you know, kind of groove song elevated itself to a kind of like a quest for spiritual transcendence as Bono wails to be moved by the spirit in female form. Yeah, you know, Bill, I, maybe I'm I'm a, car a carnal creature here, but the live bit with the belly dancer for me really brought out the sexuality of the song more so than the spirituality of the song. Now... I didn't say it wasn't sexual. I mentioned in the last episode, I thought Bono was, uh, you know, channeling uh, Marvin Gaye's quest for transcendence, which was always where the sexual and the spiritual intersects. But, you know, I have to, I've got to say something. This is something that I... I really haven't articulated before but there was something about the image used with the song the um, the close-up of the face of the woman um i know it's meant to evoke i guess the moon but the black bar in the center of her face um that vertical bar that covers her mouth it always irked me i mean mm. the song already paints um an un realistic idolized image of women uh, which we talked about during our last episode but i've always wondered what the intended meaning of that rocking image going back and forth was i mean yeah. to me it looks like a woman silenced yeah uh, which i think is a very unfortunate artistic decision yeah. um i've spoken spoken to a few other fans who happen to be women um and they were also pretty disappointed in that image yeah anyway in later tours they amend the image to um, a hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil motif, yeah. um, which implies to me that they rethought it at some point. But anyway, so back to the belly dancer. Um, the change in belly dancers later in the tour certainly had unexpected consequences, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, when the shows move to stadiums, uh, Christina can't commit and Bono asks tour choreographer Morley Steinberg to step in. And although Morley had never been a belly dancer, she was a very talented dancer in her own right. Yeah, I mean, she already had had an impressive career in modern dance and choreography. And she certainly was able to fill the role ably, but it's not the chemistry between she and Bono that makes the headlines. Midway point of the tour, it's she and Edge who come together, and of course, they end up marrying. So I say, Melody, good on you, Edge. Been, <laughs> you've been a sad sack for too many of the last few episodes. Yes, I was getting pretty tired of it, Edge. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Very happy for the Edge, yes. Yes, definitely. All right, next up is One, which is now a big hit single. Um, and it's also the first moment in the show just like it is on Octane Baby, where you get that first hint of the old U2, a kind of a sensory reminder. And I remember thinking at the time the crowd was so hungry, you know, after that first bombardment of all this new U2-ishness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, 
they were so hungry for that communal feeling uh, of a U2 show. And no matter how bitter the lyrics really were, I think they're that's not what they're tuning in on. They're tuning in on a feeling. And maybe that's why the song has always been misunderstood, lyrically at least, um, which is something you brought up uh, with how a U2 show or a U2 crowd co-opted, you know, like the meaning of streets, for instance. Um, this overriding feeling that happens collectively at a U2 show. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. Um, and, you know, I, I think that uh, with Bono strapping on a guitar for the song, um, it took the theatricality from the previous songs way down. It was really this breathing space um, where, like you mentioned, the audience can come, uh, the, the, the audience can directly connect to the band and the song. Kind of a reality check amidst all the unreality. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like to just kind of like dig down a little deeper even, because as I said, it's like, it's such a disorienting experience. You know, we we're talking about like, how do I perceive this like as an old fan? And, you know, it's like at that point, this is like song, what is it, like sound five at this point? Right. You know, like I'm I'm trying to figure out what I'm watching, right? <laughs> I've got Zeus Station. I've got even uh, the fly, even the, even better than the real thing. I've got, you know, um, mysterious ways. I mean, belly I'm dancers. Being, uh, belly dancers <laughs> and the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, but then I get something that feels familiar, but... I don't want to think about this as a tale of woe and, you know, of a, a relationship falling apart. I want to attach on to something, you know, that, that, that feels unifying. I mean, by God, the song's called One, for God's sake. Right. Yeah, we get <laughs> so, to carry each other. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, and I, I do, I, I do. I think this is an interesting point that you're making, uh, the, the fans co-opting. Yeah. Or, I mean, it's no longer about um, this broken relationship. It is this rallying call of unity sisters then, brothers right right that's all it has to say right i mean like i felt this myself you, you want to attach yourself to that communal feeling that's what's yeah. familiar that's what you know that you know they, they've had this collateral they've built over a decade so it's natural <laughs> right you're longing to be transported to yeah. wherever that connection between band and audience takes you yeah you know which which you couldn't get there with those other songs there was no yeah. room for it so yeah I, I think you're right it's the first place that that there's a, an avenue for that to yeah. occur for sure now what's really interesting is bono even doubles down harder uh if you recall on this leg of the tour uh, with those improvised lyrics at the end. I mean, it's even more devastating. He adds lines, do you hear me coming, Lord? Can you hear me call? You hear me knocking, knocking at your door. Do you hear me coming, Lord? Can you hear me calling? Feel the scratching. Oh, you make me crawl. I mean, it's mm. he's really pulling you down there, right. <laughs> uh, which I think was just like really moving. Um, Agreed. Fact, I, fact, let's, let's listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
so next up is um, that little ditty you know I love uh, about Jack and Diane. No, that's not true. <laughs> Jesus and Judas uh, <laughs> until the end of the world. Um, I know that became a favorite uh, Octoon Baby track for you, but I, I was curious, did, did you love that before the show or was it seeing it live that convinced you? No, no, this song I I had already really grooved on. I thought that it was it was great um, okay. when I had just heard it on the album. But but I will say that that certainly was the night where I discovered what an absolutely amazing live song it was. Yeah. Um, I've said that before. I think that that outro part of the song is really one of their best moments live. Period. I mean, it's everything that U two does best. Love yeah, it. Love yeah, it. yeah. I, I, I agree. This song is on that special list of most beloved songs um, because of how powerful and transformative it is live. You know, I would put this on the list, you know, with Bad and Bullet and Streets. And, um, but yeah, the Encoda has always been a highlight of any tour. And I, I think it's been on every tour since then. So that tells you something. Right. Um, and here on Zoo TV, Bono sure played up the dramatic moment of the song, which of course is surrounding me, going down on me, you know, that lines, yeah. um, and coming out to the B stage and, you know, leaning into the crowd and letting the hands of the crowd go all over him. I mean, it's really quite a moment. For sure, 100%. Sorrows they learned to swim Surrounded me Going down on me Spinning over the brim Waves of regret Waves of joy Okay, um, Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses is up next. You know, they... You know, they they played a full band version on this first leg, but it ends up getting dropped. Um, and then they start doing the, you know, the stripped down Temple Bar version on the outside broadcast tour. But for me, it never feels like a good fit in the set list. I mean, maybe that's because it never felt like a song that belonged on Octune Baby. Uh, lyrically, yes, but musically, the vibe seems to harken back rather than push forward, which I think is even more apparent in the live set. What do you think? You know, I've got to be honest with you. I I had absolutely no memory <laughs> of the song at all. <laughs> I guess that's, um, which, that speaks which for itself. Question, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so I cheated a little bit, um, and I did some YouTubing and I searched for videos from that first leg, and I kind of understand why I didn't remember it. I mean, the song just never. It doesn't take off really. It ends up being just a sort of um, unremarkable mid-tempo number. It it doesn't go anywhere for me anyway. Yeah, yeah. I I tend to agree. Um, whereas trying to throw your arms around the world, mm -hmm. that's a favorite of mine. I, I, a really nice set piece and 
Just like its placement on Octoon Baby, I think it provides, you know, this much-needed break from the heaviness and the intensity. Uh, even offers a little levity, you know, Bono with the, you know, the black blazer, no shades, a champagne bottle hidden behind his back, and tarting it up with a girl plucked from the crowd, you know, handing her the handy cam as it was once called, as you know, um, and filming the band as he uncorks the champagne and it sprays out, often on poor Edge, who can't fend for himself <laughs> because he got to keep playing. <laughs> right. of Zoo TV, that said piece is really, it's, it's 180 degrees turn um, yeah. in feeling when you compare it to when Bono used to pull a woman out of the crowd um, like they did during Bad, say, yeah. um, on the previous few tours. We yeah. go from this sense of uh, an earnest longing to physically connect to the audience to this really easy sense of playfulness. I mean, yeah. more reinvention for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah, very true. From there, they go to the B stage segment out in the middle of the arena. And as we mentioned earlier, here they shrink things down with the very apropos cover of Lou Reed's Satellite of Love. And then a busking version of Angel of Harlem that's still a staple of the B stage right to, right to here today. Um, and actually, at, at our show, Melody, we got Dancing Queen at our show, didn't we? We did. We did. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, you know, on that tour, though, if, if you were very, very, very lucky, you got to hear Larry sing a rendition of Dirty Old Town, yes. um, which I believe he only did once during that first leg of the tour. It was in Boston. Now, back to the main stage they go, right? And I was actually very surprised they gave us that, which, as you know, is my song. So I was happy to get it, even if it was a little disorienting after trying to absorb what we got in the first hour of the show. And then an incendiary version of Bullet, which might have been the best it ever was, by the way. <laughs> uh, and then it goes into Running to Standstill, which for me is the definitive version of that song. That I disagree with you. Um, I like the ZTV version, uh, but I do prefer the Joshua Tree version. Um, you know, I've always thought the the persona, the the paramilitary guy, uh, Bono Don during Bullet, really worked well for that song. But for me, that kind of falls flat during uh, Running to Stand Still. This is one where I don't think that the artifice worked particularly well. Okay, but I think you're talking about the character Bono's portraying, if I'm not mistaken. I'm talking about it as the definitive kind of musical and vocal performance of Running to Standstill. I mean, I think Edge's reinvention on guitar of the piano part and the 
kind of like helicopter blade-like metronome is so hypnotic, you know, like, I love that. <laughs> yes, I agree. I like, I do um, like that too. Yeah. And then, you know, do you not love that Bono play acting the heroin addicts lament in, in to, wailing to me, hallelujah at the end of that? Like I said, I like it, but it it's a little over the top for me. Mm, and so I okay. prefer the stripped back version better there are a lot of elements i really do love about it but yeah that it's it's just not my favorite version huh. okay yeah. that surprises me but you know that's why there's chocolate and vanilla <laughs> <laughs> i i i just really love that yeah, yeah. a bit yeah. but okay hey man that's why we're doing this show right, right all right but listen if you'll indulge me if you'll indulge me um let's take a quick listen to uh From there, from out of the smoke, it segues beautifully into Streets. Right, which had that funny segment, if you recall, where they flash that footage of them in Joshua Tree and Bono calls yep. out from the stage to his younger self. Hey, you! I you! Um, and then to close the main set with Pride and then ending with I Still Haven't Found. Uh, now, to me... You know, this last part of the main set felt a little like a concession to the old fans, which is really my only complaint about Zoo TV. You know, this so-called oldie set to appease the old fans. Um, I mean, that was what felt jarring to me. Not the eight new songs to start the show, not the fly, not the shades, not the absence of, uh, you know, earnestness. I love that it felt defiant. You know, love us or hate us. This is us now. Deal. You know, I I actually loved it. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I get that. But I, I mean, really, Bono had already broken character, so to speak, uh, during Bad, uh, which was a pretty straightforward and, dare I say, earnest version of that song. Yeah, I mean, that's what I meant. I mean, about getting bad. I mean, it did take a minute to process it. Sure, sure. I, I mean, in any case, for me, I didn't find streets and I still haven't found what I'm looking for as off-putting as you did. Um, I don't even actually remember hearing pride because, well, you know, the song is just not my jam. Um, and that one I didn't search on YouTube. Well, we have you on record melody for, you know, pride is the jaunty one. It and, is jaunty. and it is the one that you take <laughs> your bathroom break on. So there is that. I could have been there. Yes, that's uh. true. Look, it wasn't that it was off-putting. It just felt unnecessary. I mean, I felt like, hey, this is actually working. Um, I don't need to be thrown a bone or like, oh, if they don't play streets, I'll feel cheated. Um, because for me, after Rattle and Hum and Love Town, I didn't think you two had much left to offer as a live band. I mean, I still love them, but as a creative force, I mean, I, you know, honestly, I was dubious. Um, 
So, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, you get that big, you feel like you have to play certain songs out of obligation. So at least for me, I felt like, you know, they had triumphed with the new U2 and playing the old songs. It kind of felt awkward for Bono to get into those tunes. What did you feel? Did you need those songs, at least on this tour? You know, I mean, look, I, I loved hearing Streets and I still haven't found. Um, and certainly with I Still Haven't Found, maybe there was a sense of obligation to play the big hit, not just for the old fans, but for the casual fans, too. So that 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 could be true. But I also think it serves as another break from all of the theatricality, just as one had earlier in the set and also bad as we spoke about. I, I mean, I guess I feel that a show needs to ebb and flow. So, yeah, I do think that it worked here. And I mean, that theatricality gets ramped up in such a big way again for the encore. I guess that makes sense because, you know, I, I'll give you this, that the encore is um, masterful. For me, this is where the show rallies and finishes so dark and elegant, you know, striking a perfect balance between camp and that deep, dark emotion introduced on Octane Baby. Right. Yes. But it certainly starts with camp, um, you know, and of course, I'm talking about Bono's Mirrorball Man. Yeah. You know, the the, the silver lame suit and cowboy hat, the way over the top parody of a mm -hmm. discoed out used car salesman meets pimp meets TV evangelist. And of course, this, this character is later to be replaced by the Faustian Macfisto on the Zeropa legs of the tour, which we'll get to later in another episode. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, Mirrorball Man, you know, perfect, perfect egotistical character to really vamp up that character that Bono is singing in, in Desire. Yeah, I mean, he comes out on Desire to start the encore. He's holding the mirror and he says to himself... And that whole money, 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 money bit, you know, as he tosses dollar bills in the air and he shouts, I have a vision. I have a vision. Television. Television. <laughs> <laughs> um, from there, you know, he makes the crank call to the first President Bush. And just when you think it's all going to degenerate into schlock. And, you know, is this the end of the show? You know, mm -hmm. but then Bono takes off his hat. He takes off the shades and the sweat is beating down and the makeup is running, uh, you know, onto his flash clothes. And unlike at any point in the set, he he he's vulnerable and he he delivers these very emotional versions back to back to back of ultraviolet with or without you and love is blindness. And it's just a remarkable ending, not the rousing and hopeful resolution of a typical YouTube show. And instead, we're led away into the dark uncertainty of the future. Just as we were on Octung Baby. So it's yes. very appropriate. Very um, much. And I have to say, you know, Edge's playing live on Love is Blindness. It was so powerful on record. It remains powerful in that live set. I remember it very, very well. Um, 
seeing that at the LA Sports Arena, it was the only time I've ever cried during a guitar solo. Completely moved me. Really did. Yeah. Well, I certainly felt that. Melody. So in totality on this show, for me, it all felt so big, so bold, so brave. But what I really remember thinking during that show was this is way too big for this place. It felt like the roof was going to come off. The sound, the visuals, the ideas were too big for an arena. It needed to get outside, you know, without encumbrances. And, of course, you got your wish. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I mean, after doing yeah. another fairly short second leg in indoor arenas in Europe in May and June of 1992, the band came back to North America for the outside broadcast leg of the tour, which lasted from mid-August to late November 1992. And that's really where Zoo TV was at its best for me. I mean, outside in stadiums where the scaffolding was bigger, the towers taller, more video screens, a longer catwalk. Um, And isn't it interesting that after the band had had so much anxiety playing stadiums on the Joshua Tree Tour, U2 is actually more comfortable and are better in stadiums on the Zoo TV Tour. Much better. Arguably the best they've ever been. Yeah, you. I mean, you're bringing up a really, really good point here. I've often wondered if in part... The grandeur and magnitude of Zoo TV wasn't in some sense a reaction um, to the band and Bono's insecurity about playing stadiums during the Joshua Tree. You know, when Larry was saying stuff like we were the biggest, but we weren't the best, Um, you know, kind of a never again, right, type of mentality. Oh, oh, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's Mm -hmm. absolutely, you know, Bono's motive for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... I mean, Zoo TV, I agree, it was conceived for the stadium setting, and it was only pulled back initially into arenas out of fiscal concerns. Now they had their proof of concept from the two indoor legs and could finally move forward. Not to mention they had a record that was taking off in four (laughs) four hits. True, that's very true, yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so now this is the crossover point, I just point out, where the set lists become static. Because it's so much harder to improvise on stage, you know, like they'd done on prior tours, you know, what with all the pre-programmed visuals and needing the musical support from the underworld, um, as we mentioned earlier, in order to recapture some of the sonic textures uh, on Octoon Baby. Yeah, and I mean, they of course, they did consider using extra musicians on stage, but ended up keeping the extra help out of the audience's line of sight. I mean, maybe this was a reaction to the uncomfortable show band vibes that they put off during the Love Town tour yeah. when they brought in, you know, the horn section and the backup singers and, and all that good stuff. Or, I mean, maybe it was just simply an aesthetic thing for them. Yeah, personally, I, I think it was, you know, for the aesthetics. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. Now, as utterly marvelous as this all sounded, and as much of an impressive spectacle it all looked, it must be said, from this point forward, on all future tours, the band feels an obligation to better themselves, to go bigger, be more impressive, and more innovative, not unlike a Hollywood blockbuster mentality. At some points, it works. Other points, not so much. What's your feeling? Well, I mean, that's certainly true with Pop Mart, which, of course, we'll get to. Um, mm -hmm. But they did dial it way back with the Elevation Tour, which was probably a reaction to Pop Mart, which we'll get to. Yeah. Um, but to your point, I think the impulse to drive yourself to find the new and the inspiring, it, it can be a great jumpstart to creativity as it was here. Yeah, I mean, certainly here on Zoo TV, where they are really clicking creatively. I mean, this is what I admire about this time period. Uh, there was this collective drive from everyone in the entire U2 organization to try and get the concept to continue to evolve and be as mind-blowing as possible. Um, like the way the show started. Um, we talked about the first leg where Bono comes out, you know, alone um, on out on outside broadcasts you know they play over the pa television the drug of a nation right i mean which was we've got to say that's the perfect song uh to play right before the lights go down i mean that yeah. song pretty much sums up the whole zoo tv experience case in point the lyrics TVIT satellite links are United States of unconsciousness, apathetic, therapeutic, and extremely addictive. The methadone, metronome, pumping out 150 channels 24 hours a day. So I think we should listen to that. Yeah, for sure. Television, the drug of a nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation on television. The drug of a nation, breeding ignorance and feeding radiation TV. Its satellite links are United States of Unconsciousness. Apathetic, therapeutic, and extremely addictive. The methadone metronome pumping out 150... And that would then run into what we referred before, the first President Bush chanting, We Will Rock You, and Bono doing his silhouetted uh, pantomime against the blue screen. I mean, this was probably the greatest intro to a rock concert ever. I agree. Okay, we're going to pause things here at the conclusion of the outside broadcast tour at the end of 1982. The plan is they'll take a five-month break to recharge their batteries before a stadium tour in the summer in Europe, and then on to Down Under. But they get restless and do something they've never done before, or since. Uh, they pump out an album in record time, no fussiness, no overthinking, and it's totally instinctual. And captures a moment in time during this mad adventure of the Zoo TV time period. A record called Zeropa. Which we will discuss next time on the Into the Heart of You 2 podcast. Music